Hello, everyone. This is Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP Northampton, and 103.3 FM on the air. We're also live streaming on the internet at valleyfreeradio.org. And you're listening to Under the Surface, and I'm your host, Amy Landau. Thanks for joining me. My guest for today is my longtime friend, Nancy Kissick, who will be speaking to me from across the Atlantic Ocean in just a few moments. I've known Nancy since I was only about 13 years old. In fact, I remember seeing her very vividly. The first time I laid eyes on her, she was actually asleep on my parents' living room sofa in New York City. We had never met before, but she was a a friend of some very good friends of ours and had arranged to stay with us in Manhattan. And I remember walking through the door of my parents' house and seeing this glamorous woman with very long, dark hair asleep on the couch and seeing her tall leather boots by the sofa. All I knew about her then was that she was from Los Angeles, California, a part of the country I'd never seen. But Nancy and I immediately connected, and she kind of took me under her wing. We wandered around the city together, exploring art galleries and museums and all kinds of things. In fact, we even wandered into Trump Tower together, boo hissed, riding the glitzy escalator up to the top, little knowing how then how important and how disturbing, I might add, that name would one day come to be. And Nancy was always a lot of fun. We wrote letters for a time, then we lost touch, but then we got back in touch, and we've been friends ever since. Now that I look back on how I met Nancy, it seems so fitting with her nature that I met her during a trip to New York City, and we explore the city together, because Nancy is a traveler and an adventurer. And this is, in fact, the reason I wanted her to be a guest on my show today, You see, three years ago, in September of 2014, at the age of 73, Nancy made a startling change in her life. She relocated from the U.S. to Paris, France, and she's lived in Paris ever since. And it's the boldness and courage of this decision to radically change her life, to sell her home in L.A., where she'd lived for, I think, about 40 years, and to take this giant leap of faith by leaving everything behind for a totally new life in a new country that really astonished and impressed me, especially at a time in life when most people just want to stay settled and comfortable and avoid rocking the boat in any way. I mean, here she was, a 73-year-old single woman who up and left the U.S. to move to Paris, France by herself. How many people do you know who have done that? And while it's true that Americans have always had an infatuation with Paris, not many actually take the plunge. So, Nancy, welcome to Under the Surface. Thanks for coming on the show today. Amy, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Great. And Nancy, it seems like you've always had a very spontaneous, intuitive spirit and a real wanderlust. I know you grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and went to college at Michigan State University for two years, and that you also had a summer job in Ann Arbor. And at the end of that summer, you were supposed to return to college to enroll in the next semester, but you made a split-second decision while waiting for your ride that changed everything. Can you tell me about that decision? I remember it vividly, Amy. Um, It was just one of those things. I was waiting for my ride, standing across the street, 1025 Packard Avenue, I remember, and I just suddenly said to myself, I'm supposed to go and register at school today. And I said, okay, if my ride shows up I, on time, I won't, I won't go back to school. If he doesn't show up, I'll 
that'll be it. I'll go and I'll, I'll register. And he showed up on time. I got in the car, and that was it. And I never looked back. <laughs> Had he not shown up on time, I'd have walked back across the street to my apartment, gathered my things, and gone from Ann Arbor to East Lansing. And I would oh, have been okay. to my junior year. So the ride was back to Ann Arbor. Yes. Okay. I, my, I th- where, right. where I had my summer job in Ann Arbor I was see. slightly outside of town, so I, had, I didn't have a car. Had to have a ride every right. day. So I see. I thought it was the opposite, that he was your ride back to college. <laughs> No, 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 no. <laughs> Here's a ride to my, to my job. Right. I have my summer job. Right. So. And when you were only 23 years old in 1964, you decided to get a driveway car for a cross-country trip to San Francisco. And apparently you never looked back then either because you ended up living there, I understand, for about five years. Tell me about that decision to go to San Francisco and what possessed you to do that. Well, part of it, stemmed from something when I was quite young. When I was a very young teen, for some reason, I decided that when I got older, I was going to live in three cities, San Francisco, New York, and Paris. Don't ask me how I arrived at that, but I did. And so it, it wasn't such a long shot. But when I was at Ann Arbor, I knew that I couldn't stay there the rest of my life. And I wanted, I wanted to go to California. I wanted to see San Francisco. And, of course, this is 1964, so all kinds of things are starting to happen at Berkeley, you know, the free speech movement and everything. So, anyhow, that was – it just kind of happened. I just, I just do it. And I had a friend who had a car. He drove me from Ann Arbor to, into Detroit to a driveaway place. And it turns out they had a car leaving. And I can't remember now whether it was in two days or four days or it was a very short amount of time. But it was a Lincoln Continental with power, power seats, power windows. And in 1964, that was, that was a big deal. But oftentimes people who, had, who bought really fancy cars that lived on the coast or distances would have someone drive the car rather than have it transported on one of those big carriers. So anyhow, I had the car and off I went. Wow. I made one stop in I made one stop in Denver because someone I knew is at the University of Michigan, his parents lived there and I stopped there overnight and then from there I headed to San Francisco, ran out of gas in Vernal, Utah mm-hmm. and had a little episode that I purchased a cowboy hat when I was in Denver. What else? And when I ran out of gas, I just sat on the, I remember, I remember what I was wearing even. And I sat on the front fender of this Continental with my thumb out and a truck driver stopped, picked me up, took me to the nearest town, got gas, took me back, filled up my car, I don't know, two gallons, whatever it was. And off I went back to, you know, into San Francisco. Wow. That's a great story. Um, You worked your way up from secretary, which we now say administrative assistant, uh, to producer in the world of advertising in San Francisco. And then you ended up moving to Los Angeles for a new job where you lived, I think, for over 40 years, right? Yes. I never intended to live in L.A., but that's how it worked out. But I loved San Francisco, and I was really fortunate because when I arrived there, I had to deliver the car to the East Bay, and I don't even remember how I got from the East Bay back into San Francisco, into the city, but I somehow did. And the first thing I did was I found an apartment, and I remember that Buchanan and Clay, 
And then I looked for a job, and I went to an agency, and I went in, and this woman said to me, oh, you're perfect for this advertising agency. Jim Nelson will love you. He has a piano in his office. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's cool. You know, he's got a piano in his office. I didn't know anything. I mean, I was so naive about so much, but I went along with it. I went in. I interviewed. Jim Nelson hired me. He also gave me my first opportunity to to get into production, even though I was a secretary. He actually had me go to Los Angeles to screen a time print, a Technicolor. I had no clue what it was about. Well, I don't know what a time I, print is. Can you tell me? Well, at that time, it was all filmed before the digital age. Mm -hmm. um, you, would, you would sit with the timer, and you, the prints would come out, and you would talk about the tone that you wanted it. But you would, you would say, it's too blue, it's too red, add another point of yellow, add this, take out that to manipulate the color. So they, the timer would do that, and they'd put it through the bath again, and then another print will come out in a, in a few days or so, and you go back and you take a look at it again. So there I was sitting there with this timer. I'd never done, I, had, I didn't even know about what that was. But I had, and Jim must have known this, I had some sort of sensibilities, I guess. Some sort of what? Can you repeat? Some sort of? A sensibility sensibility or aesthetic sense right. that I looked at it and I was able to say, that's, that's not right. It's too dark. It's too this. And I heard myself saying these things and saying, Nancy, what are you doing? But it was <laughs> what I saw. So uh -huh. I responded to what I saw. And it turns out that when Jim screened the final print, he said it was absolutely perfect. So, but who knows why he sent me there, but he did. And that was my first opportunity. Mm -hmm. to, to production. And uh, so I know that you visited, I have so many questions for you. I know that you visited Europe and France for the first time in the 80s, and you had a few visits. What was it about Paris that you loved? Was, was it then that the idea first hatched in your mind to live in Paris one day? Maybe, maybe so. But really, it was part of that dream as a, as a child. I'll tell you one other story that impacted my life. Growing up, my family was not a social family. My parents had one set of friends, Bunny and Chess. Chess, they didn't have children, but Chess adored me. And I, I happened to latch on to his National Geos at one time when we were visiting. So every time thereafter, when we, we'd go there for dinner, I was the only one who besides Chess, who was allowed to sit in his recliner, and I did, and he'd stack on the floor next to me all of his National Geos. So I would sit there and, and go through these National Geos, and I was just in this magical world that I knew nothing about. But one of the things that struck me was, you know, we had those pull-down maps in front of what were then blackboards, not green boards. And I'd look at those maps, and I'd think, wouldn't it be cool if I could put my finger on any place in the world, just close my eyes, put my finger on and look at it and say, I know who lives there. I know the language they speak. I know what they eat. I know how they dress. For some reason, you know, th that, was, that was a young person growing up. That, that excited me. So when I finally got to travel, um, it was just that part of me that was coming alive. So coming to Paris was part of this you know, my, my 
New York, San Francisco, Paris living one day. Right. But once I got here, it was just, it felt like there was a comfort level for me. Mm-hmm. And who, who can't like it? I mean, yeah. Paris is extraordinarily beautiful in so many ways. So right. That was part of it. Yeah. And you mentioned that when you uh, were with this friend of your parents, uh, you looked at national, I couldn't get the other word you said, it sounded like geodes. Can you repeat that? Yeah, National Geographic. Oh, National Geographic magazines. Okay, I was confused because I was thinking of, okay, rocks like geodes with crystals in them, but the national didn't fit. Okay. (laughs) I just shortened it. I just said National Geo. Oh, that that makes more sense. Yes, that makes sense. So, and I know that you thought about moving to Paris like 10 years ago and changed your mind. You weren't quite ready. And then a few years later, you had what you call a if not now, then when moment. What made you decide to take the leap? And and you said you realized what your greatest fear was. It'd be interesting for you to share that too. Well, you know, People would ask me what my fears were. You know, sometimes people, when you have conversations, what do you fear most or whatever? And people have all kinds of fears, whether it's snakes, speaking in public, whatever. My, I realized that my fear was that I would die before I lived my life. I, I wanted, I, and I, I remember talking to, to someone that I knew in L.A. about 10 years ago about that. And I said, I haven't lived my life yet. I haven't lived my life. And that meant that something was missing that I needed to get I needed to get moving. And I didn't say, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll go to Paris. I didn't think that. You know, there, there are steps that we take. It's an evolution. It's not just, well, for some, maybe they just make a decision and just do it. But for me, I know it was evolutionary. As I said to you, I started getting my house in shape to sell it in, in 2008 or 2007, right around there. And then when it came time to put it on the market, I just couldn't do it. Something held me back. And so then when I turned 70 in 2011, I said to myself, what are you going to do to celebrate? Because i would never done anything. You know, people go off to, to Tahiti or, you know, give themselves big birthday parties. I never did that. And this time I said, okay, Nancy, what do you really want to do? And Nancy said mm-hmm. she wanted to go to Paris. Mm-hmm. So the two weeks before my birthday, I, I got on the, the computer and I found a ticket, you know, you know, I could use miles on whatever it was, on Air France, and, and I, I booked it, and I, I booked a hotel. I didn't know exactly what I was doing, but I did it. And I seem to function like that. Once I make the decision to do something, I'm not big on researching so that I know every single thing. I don't do itineraries when mm-hmm. I travel so that every day I know where I am every hour of the day. I can't do that. I don't travel like that. I don't live like that. Mm -hmm. So that was the first step. Two weeks later, I'm on a plane. I come to Paris. I get off the plane. I'm walking around Paris. There was a full moon that night. And I went down by the Seine. And my my hotel where I was staying in the 6th arrondissement was not far from the Seine. And I'm walking along. And I realized, you know, that tears started to just roll down my face. I was so happy. I... I just felt this, I, I guess it's gratitude. 
I feel like I'm a very lucky person in so many ways. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm standing along the sand looking at it. I and I got on a Batamuch that night and it was cold, it was March, March seventh as a matter of fact. And I we went up and down the sand and of course Paris at night is just a glow. It was just extraordinary. But I found myself walking around the city for that for those eight or ten days with a handkerchief in my hand because tears would just start would come to my eyes sometimes. So, you know, that really set me going. I and something happened inside and started the wheels churning. And and I was working on a, a film at the time, and it it didn't really it, until 2013 it didn't premiere. So I just. I, I was working and thinking at the same time. So when you when you talked about um, the fear, that was not that was before you had decided what you were going to do. It just sort of you yeah. you were thinking what are what is my greatest fear, and somehow recognizing that made you want to break through and change that so that you wouldn't have that fear. Is that right? No, I'm not exactly not exactly, Amy. I, it, it, that's too thought out and logical, and I'm not. I'm not that logical and thought out. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it was one thing leads to the next. It's a genesis for something else to follow, and then something else. It's like there are steps, but they're not planned steps. Yeah. They they would it would come to me as it was like necessary. Mm-hmm. So when I said to that that woman when I said. My greatest fear is that I will die before I've lived my life. I haven't lived my life. That just kind of was the first time I said it out loud. And saying something out loud is very different than having it inside, as everyone knows. You hold something in your head for all your life for for many years is very different than once it's articulated. Mm -hmm. Once it's articulated, it takes on a life of its own. Something happens. It has a shape, a form, a color. And it begins to grow, and that's what happens. So things aren't always in the head, but they're in the in in the spirit somewhere. Yeah. And within the within the spirit, that's what propels you. At least it propels me along to move to to evolve to go to the next step that I need to make something happen. I didn't say, "Oh boy, I I'm now going to Paris," because I realized it just. I knew though when I came here in 2011 that I needed to do something with my life. And the other thing is, is I had a wonderful house in L.A. I love my house. Everybody loved my house. It was full of artwork. It, was a, it wasn't like a big mansion, but it was a really wonderful house filled with character of all kinds. Mm-hmm. And I just, I said, you know, I'm really fortunate. I, I've had the luxury of this home. And to have a fireplace that I'd wanted since I was a kid, to live in a, a home with a fireplace, I said, I don't want to sit here and watch it crumble around me and die. Mm-hmm. You know, I knew I hadn't lived my life. The two things came together, and I said, I'm grateful for this home. I'm grateful for all that I've had, but it's time to move on, essentially. Mm-hmm. And that's what propelled me. Mm-hmm. And I just didn't tell anyone. I just I kept doing things to make it happen. And yeah, it was quite a surprise for all your friends, wasn't it? It was um, really it, exciting. It was. Because when I found a, a realtor who uh, 
promise, I said to her, I said, look, I have a couple of caveats. One is I do not move out of here until July 31st of 2014. Number two, I don't have a for sale sign in my front yard because I did not want people coming by and saying, oh, you're moving. Where are you going? What's going to happen? I did not want right. that. Mm-hmm. And, and then I had another caveat about the, the amount of money I wanted for it. It mm-hmm. was non-negotiable. Right. I was not going to negotiate. This was my price, and that was it. Because mm-hmm. I'd looked at the comps in my neighborhood. I had a pretty good idea of it. So that was it. And I, I was fortunate. In two weeks, a lot of people came, but uh, one was a developer, and right then we settled on it. So, mm-hmm. And um, you said that you you felt that you had not lived your life. And so that, in a way, going to Paris, I know it wasn't all that so logical, but in a way, you thought, well, what what do I want to do? And this is what your answer was. So I guess what I'm wondering is, was there something in, did you just generally feel, I want to travel or I want to experience more that life has to offer? Well, I'll tell you this. When this goes back to when I was quite young also. You know, people say to you when you're young, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Uh, it's a, you know, yeah. a question often asked. And people would ask me that, and I said, I'm going to travel. And, you know, it's say, no, what are you going to, what are you, what are you going to be when you grow up? I said, mm-hmm. I'm going to travel. And, you know, like by the third time around, I realized I couldn't say that. It wasn't legitimate, but it's what I wanted to do. And it goes back to, you know, pulling the map down in front of the blackboard and being able to point to anywhere in the world and say, I know what's there, who lives there, how they dress, what they eat, what they, you know? Mm-hmm. So something was in me. I always, I was always out there looking. And when I was a little kid, from the time I was like a year old until I was six years old, um, we went to a place up at Van Buren, New York, near, not far from Erie, Pennsylvania, and it was mainly because my brother was ill, and the doctor told my mother that to take him away, that he, you know, to build him up. I'm the one who got built up. But as young as I was living in that community, and of course it was just an enclave of cottages, none of which were year-round cottages. They weren't insulated for that. They were summer summer cottages, and it was a great place to be. But I would wander off from the time I was two, three years old, and just wander down the roads and go off. I could tell you a zillion stories of things that I did, and even borrowing bikes, you know, that were next to a cottage, a child's bike. Borrowing, against a, you said borrowing bicycles? Wall. Yeah, and uh-huh. I, I would use it for the day and then take it back and return it at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And, of course, my mother was mortified with things that I did, mm-hmm. and I was punished constantly. She'd sit me on the front step by the, uh, the screened-in porch and say, now, don't you dare move from here. You're like you're grounded for an hour or whatever it was. She hardly got inside, and I was gone. And I didn't do it to defy her. I did it because there was this tree in the backyard that I needed to climb. And there was this beach down there with all these seashells that, that I could get. You know, there was something mm-hmm. that I... I always saw out there, so... Right, and I'm you you wanted to explore. You had the wanderlust yeah. even as a child, it sounds like. I, I've had it forever. Right. And I was... I've, I have a good sense of direction. My dad did. My mother didn't. She was afraid of everything. Uh, traveling frightened her. Uh, she needed to know where she was all the time. And I was just the opposite. I, I could go someplace and... Like I came here, I didn't know the language, I didn't know anyone. I went to San Francisco, didn't know anyone. Mm -hmm. And it's only looking back 
and you asking me these questions mm-hmm. that I reflect that, you know, I've done a lot in my life where I just did it because I wanted to do it without thinking about all the consequences. Right. Which isn't very smart, by the way, but I did it nonetheless and have been very fortunate. Yeah, it seems to have worked out. And I'm also curious to hear more about how you prepared for this big trip, because I think you said that you lived in your home for about 40 years, um, so you were quite settled there. And you've told me how, how hard it was to dispose of all the precious possessions you had that you'd collected over a lifetime. And I know that process was grueling. What were the thoughts that ran through your brain when you did this? Well, you know, what was difficult about it wasn't the the disposing of things. Because once I went through the process and got to the point where I said, okay, I'm selling my house, I also, from that point on, from when it was sold in 2013 of December, for the next two or three months, I walked around the house looking at things. And the collection that I have, what I had, and some I still have in storage, but very little, was was really based upon everything had a story to it. It's where I was, who I was with, who I met, uh, who I talked to. Everything, everything just about had a story to it. And that's what I enjoyed about my collection. It wasn't just stuff to put, to fill spaces or to fill, uh, you know, a hook, a nail on a, on a wall or something like that. Everything was about where I had been in my life and who I had been with and who I'd met and who I talked to. So I walked around and I looked at all of these things. And just as a producer, what I did was I got it in my mind what I knew I would let go of and what I would keep. And I was amazed at what I let go of. But, you know, I have to admit that when I did have my estate sale, it was it, I was embarrassed. It was a plethora of riches. I mean, I thought, oh, wow, you know, how mm-hmm. did how did I how was I so fortunate to, to have all these wonderful, beautiful things? And so I really for three months plotted it. And then I searched out someone to um, to handle the estate sale. And then I searched out also specific people who handled certain things to sell, like Lalique and um, North, Northwest Coast Indian things that I had. I found particular dealers for that. And then I'm fortunate enough to have a really dear friend who found someone to buy a birch bark canoe that I had that I had bought in the 70s from Henri Valancourt, who was at, lived in New Hampshire, and Henri made canoes, birch bark canoes, the old Maliseet Indian way. And they were works of art in the paddles that he made. It's 16 feet long. And when I first bought it, I lived in a townhouse in uh, with two stories. And the upper story had a terrace on or a balcony that I had the canoe suspended. But when I moved in the house, I couldn't find a place to put it. So it ended up being in the garage all that time. But there was no way I was going to just, you know, get throw that away or have someone come and pick it up and throw it in the trash. So a dear friend of mine in San Francisco, Cindy Fluid, she's a, a producer, was an executive producer for, for years, and she found one man who had a client who wanted that canoe, you know, wow. <laughs> and, and, and the snowshoes that Henri Valancourt made also. Uh-huh. And he lived in a house behind his, a little hut where his grandfather was. He was... Um, 
French-Canadian, and his he made everything by hand, and he had three elements, I think. He had a hatchet to, to, to strip birch from trees, to cut down trees. He had an owl to, mm-hmm. to, to work on wood, and he had a piece of rough glass to use the sandpaper mm-hmm. and a kettle of hot water and a wood-burning stove yeah. to bend wood. I wonder so, if um, a person who bought the canoe will actually use it, uh, actually go out on the water. <laughs> I, I, I think they planned on it. I'm not really sure. I didn't follow through on things like that. Mm-hmm. I, know who, yeah. I know where it went. But mm-hmm. I didn't attach to that. Once yeah. I let go of things, I let go of them. Yeah, that, that was what I was wondering. Was there a sense of catharsis or a cleansing feeling about just, you know, giving away or, or selling your possessions? The, I, think, I think so. Um, you know, I, as I said, I collected a lot. I had a lot. And I felt so grateful. But I was also, I, I not only wanted a new place, I wanted a simpler life. I wanted to focus on something else. I wanted to write more, and I wanted to be able to travel more. And being in Paris, I'm in the hub of, you know, I can go just about anywhere out of Paris in Europe, and it's really easy, whether it's Spain, Italy, Sicily, Portugal, you know, uh, up to Sweden, Denmark. I just got back from from uh, Galway, Ireland, and Edinburgh, Scotland, and Glasgow. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, so, it's so simple to get around. It was cathartic, and quite frankly, when it was when it was all over, I did feel like this burden had been taken off of me. I felt lighter, mm-hmm. and it was a it was a, a really good feeling. I don't know how to describe it exactly, but I felt taller and I felt lighter, um, just because they were gone. And some of the people I knew who bought some of the things, others I didn't. Some people steal things at these at these estate sales. It's just amazing. And there were things I just gave away. I just said, you know, I don't need this anymore. Mm-hmm. I had gone through and selected the ones I wanted to keep. And that was major also, finding a place to store them. Right. Because they're all kinds of storage units. But the person I chose, or the place I chose was downtown LA. And he came out we met as I would meet with everyone, talk to them. He'd look at everything. We discussed the, the process. And I said to him, I said, may I come and see your facility at some point? So we arranged a time, and I went down, and I saw it. And I knew I had chosen the right person because it was, it was the temperature was perfect. It was clean. It was neat. Everything, even the offices were neat and clean. This, mm-hmm. was, this was a professional place. Yeah. And as I was leaving, he said, I have to tell you something. He said, in all the years I've been doing this with my father and on my own with my brother, he said, no one has ever asked to come see the facility until you. Oh. And I thought, gee, isn't that funny? The mm-hmm. people wouldn't care about where the things are. Yeah, you know, that's interesting. Uh, well, I think this is a good time to take a little break. And this is Under the Surface on Valley Free Radio WXOJ Northampton. And my guest today is Nancy Kissick, an American who made the daring move of relocating from the U.S. to Paris, France, three years ago at the age of 73. We're going to pause now to listen to a Paris-related song, and then we'll hear a few announcements, but we'll be right back. So stay, stay tuned, everyone. The way I 
Smoking and cigarettes due to the inside of your body? It hurts your body. Smoke and cigarettes can hurt your lungs. It hurts your throat. It hurts lots of other parts, too. It makes you more likely to get heart disease and lung disease. It increases your risk for a heart attack or stroke. And on the outside, it maybe just stinks. Your clothes smell, your breath is gross, and your teeth get yellow. Hello! Do you hear what we're saying? Do you hear what we're saying? Smoking isn't cool. It's not cool at all. And it can kill you. And you won't start smoking for yourself. Just do it for me. And me. And me. And me. And me. And we're back. Thanks for listening. If you're just joining us, welcome. This is Under the Surface, and you're listening to WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM on the air. And we're also live streaming on the internet at valleyfreeradio.org. And we just heard the song Free Man in Paris by Joni Mitchell. And my guest today is Nancy Kissick, who I've been talking to from across the Atlantic Ocean, a very unique and independent woman who made the daring decision to follow a dream of hers to relocate from the U.S. to Paris, France, three years ago at the age of 73. So let's get back to our conversation, Nancy. Are you with me? 
I certainly am, Amy. Great. So, Nancy, you've traveled a lot throughout Europe since your move to Paris. Um, Can you share, uh, or maybe just tell me what you did today? I know you went to a special place today, didn't you? I went to the Grand Palais today to see, to photo Paris. Every year, photo Paris is here, and galleries from all over the world come with, with, you know, what they're trying to sell. And it's amazing because... I can't do it all because I get, like, museum fatigue, and it's not physical, it's mental. Mm-hmm. I can't absorb everything. It's, But I saw some things today that are so incredible because the technology is changing so much that now everything you see, you see how the technology is changing the art in so many ways. Mm-hmm. And. I, I, if I had time, I would tell you some of them, but I right. don't because they're so intricate. Right. But, you know, I, I saw Blade Runner the other night, and that reminded me also, I mean, the technology and filmmaking, what's done, it's, it's extraordinary. It's really very exciting. Mm-hmm. But I also think, while it's exciting, I think at some point I'll be left in the dust. I won't <laughs> understand what's going on. You know? Oh, I feel that way, too. And I have a lot of other questions to ask you as well. So... Now that you lived, you've lived in France and spent more time in Europe, I'm wondering, do you have any particular insights about the French or European way of life versus the U.S. way of life? Is there a particular mindset that is different there? Well, you know, it's hard to generalize, especially since I don't speak the language, although I do have a number of French friends, so uh, fortunately, who are able to speak English or we muddle through and trying to translate everything. Mm-hmm. But the, the one thing I'm aware of here in Paris, I can't talk about the French in a generalized way, but I will say my experience with Parisians is that they're really well-read, generally speaking. I think they're generally more educated than Americans in general, and they pride themselves on that. It is not uncommon to be on the metro, on a bus or whatever, People have books. They're reading mm-hmm. all the time. They sit in the park and read. Mm-hmm. On their lunch hour, they've got a book they're reading. Um, I think I think that the other thing that I, I see here is the cafe society. You know, they cafes are filled all the time. It's just amazing. Work is over five or six o'clock. Everybody's into into a cafe, and they all stop. Everybody stops at noon for lunch. You can be with your banker. And having a meeting, and it comes noon, it's like, you'll have to excuse me, but, you know, we'll have to continue this another time. <laughs> and he, he, he wanders off to lunch. They do that. They, mm-hmm. we're, we're very, the U.S., we're very service-oriented. You know, it's the Nordstrom, Trader Joe's kind of mentality. Whereas here, service is not a priority mm-hmm. uh, in a lot of places. You can go into a place, let's say a market, and you see something on a shelf, and it, it, or it's gone, and you say, will you be getting more? And I don't know. Uh, do you have any in the back? I don't know. They don't mm-hmm. say, let me check. I'll mm-hmm. tell you. Mm-hmm. Or fake it, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, just, they just don't seem to, to follow through on things like that. It's not part of their M.O. Mm-hmm. So that's a real difference. Right. I mean, this makes me think of the Michael Moore f- film, um, 
I forget what it was called, but it was a documentary where he visited different places around Europe. And one of the amazing things was how people value just their privacy and having, you know, not they're not allowed to disturb your boss isn't allowed to send you an email after hours. And there's plenty of time for vacation, paid vacation even. So that seems like a very different. they, They have more paid holidays here in France maybe in all of Europe, I don't know, but a lot of them are, um, you know, religious-related, religion-related. And they get the whole month of August off, but throughout the year, they get probably an average of, of five, six, seven weeks of holiday year, easily. Mm-hmm. It's wow. amazing. Yeah. And they can't get over that in the U.S. you're lucky if you get two. I know. Yeah. And that movie I was thinking of, that was called Where to Invade Next. I just remembered that. It was kind of a tongue-in-cheek name. Um, right. And he, he he stuck a flagpole every place. Exactly. The American yes. Right. Yes. Yes. And I so I'm wondering, you said that, you know, you, you, you haven't learned the language. And I know it's really difficult to learn a language. Um, and, it, you know, it's babies pick up languages quickly, but, you know, definitely harder the older we get. How do the, I mean, is, is that must be difficult. I mean, it seems like a disadvantage. How do the French people respond to you as an American expatriate and, you know, the, the fact that you aren't speaking French um, or just as an American living in Paris? Well, you know, it, it, there are all kinds of reactions, really. But I found that the older people, I was in a laundromat across the street. It's a very tiny one. I was there uh, alone one day, and a man came in to put his wash in, and he was probably 60, 65, something like that. And bonjour, bonjour. You always say bonjour. Mm -hmm. And if you go into a store, wherever you go, the first word out of your mouth is bonjour. Mm -hmm. You say bonjour before everything Mm -hmm. to whom you speak so I said bonjour, he said bonjour, and then he started speaking to me in French. I had an idea of what he was saying, but I said, Trola anglais, s'il vous plaît? And he said, oh, uh, American? And I said, we, oui. and he said, um, he said, you're visiting? And I said, no, I said, I live across the street. And he said, and you don't speak French? Now, that's not uncommon for an older person. And they say it with a, a bit of attitude. You yeah. Know, there's a tone. I can imagine. And but younger people, I learned this early on. The first couple months I was here, I just, I walk everywhere. And I, I walk miles every day. I'd go out and walk three, four, five hours a day. Just seeing, because I was here, you know, and, and exploring as much as I could. And I, if I got turned around, I have a really good sense of direction. But if I really wanted to know something, I learned early on, ask a young person. Because young people here almost always or many, speak English. And mm-hmm. I think it has to do with not only the times changing, but so many of them are involved in computer science or IT, mm-hmm. and they have job opportunities in England and in other English-speaking countries. I have a young friend who actually went to UCLA. He's Indian, and he lives and works in Grenoble for the French government, the French government, and they only speak English in their office, oh. all of them. Mm-hmm. So English is the universal language, and I know I've met a couple of French people who resent it terribly, and they resent Americans because American music and whatever. But, mm-hmm. you know, when I first got here, when I go into a store and you hear music playing, I bet you every place you go, 85% of the music is mm-hmm. is American. Yeah. It's, it's English. 
Mm-hmm. And did you did you take some lessons in French at first? Did you try that? I did. I the first month I was here in 2014 in January, I went to the Catholic University in the sixth arrondissement, and I went Monday through Friday, nine to noon, and Tuesdays and Thursdays, uh, two to five. And I don't understand their grading system, but the maximum amount of points was 20, and I got 13.5. And I accused my instructors of giving me points just for showing up because I you know I I just if I had stuck with it I would have been better off but I didn't stick with it after that month I got sick and then I had a private instructor who ended up after two lessons getting a job in Chicago Uh and moved there uh, to teach to teach French there so one and then I was traveling a lot and I just let, and then I tried to get an instructor again, and I just said, "Oh, you know, mm-hmm. I'll muddle along." Yeah. And I, I don't find it so difficult because I don't know why that is. I miss not being able to have conversations in French with with French people who can't speak English. But I know so many French people who speak English, you mm-hmm. know, in their fifties and sixties, and. Uh, as well as much less than that. So mm-hmm. I'm able to have conversations with them. Right. I I have an old brain. It just wasn't sticking. I yeah. didn't think. And when I spoke it, I was embarrassed by my, my <laughs> pronunciation. I would have a hard time, definitely. It seems like some people just have this facility for language, too, and others don't. <laughs> and I fall into the latter category. But I want to ask you, uh, has your experience living in France changed or broadened your worldview in some way? Has, and has it changed how you see yourself? Yes. I think if I had to say one word to describe this, this newness is perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not changing perspective so much as expanding. You know, when you live in the U.S., Everything is over there, up there, down there. It's out there somewhere. But now I live here, and I'm looking back at, you know, at the U.S. I'm looking back at my country. I'm looking at other countries from this perspective. But my perspective, even on beauty, has changed. Um, And I'm not sure I can articulate that so much as, you know, when you live with people who really look different than what you've—I lived in L.A., so I lived in, with beautiful people because everyone was in the in the business somehow or whatever. Mm-hmm. But living here, people are from all over. Also, they come from Morocco, Tunisia, uh, Algeria, from 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 the Middle East, from Italy. So the 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 looks are all different, and I found that my sense of what. A, what I thought was a beautiful or what I think of beauty in a person has changed. Just the physical beauty, not an internal beauty, but a physical beauty has changed. That's really interesting. Um, Yeah, and I would think because Los Angeles, you know, it's the whole sort of, you know, the Hollywood culture, and then there's a sort of an obsession with looks in a very, maybe a limited way, and a lot of people getting plastic surgery and sort of trying to look a certain way that is considered conventionally beautiful yeah. so maybe your your uh, aesthetics have expanded and broadened well i'll tell you, i'll tell you a little side story about that also here just to show you the opposite when i first i got my first carte de, de jour, 
it allows me, it's my visa, visitor visa, to stay here, and every year I have to renew it. But it, it was just by great good fortune that I was able to secure it here through the higher up at the prefecture, through friends of friends of mine. And the first time I was told just to, to have photo, they told me you have to pull together a lot of information, but you need a photo. And I just went into one of those you know, take your own photo, and they're in the metro stations, they have them, and I did. And I took it in, and it went through. But when I renewed it the following year, I had to, they made me go back and get a different photo because I smiled too much. And they say that about Americans. They think we're frivolous in a lot of ways, and in, they think we're, we're insincere, oh. or, you know, about, but by smiling so much. And I'm a smiler. You know, I just, I smile at people, I speak to people. I see people on my street on Rue Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and I walk up there, and I'll see them every day, and they don't speak. They don't say a word, even in shots. But I, I keep trying to say bonjour, bonjour, <laughs> because that's how I am. Right. And I, I'm not going to stop smiling because the French say it's, you know, frivolous or insecure, a sign of, inse- you know, or insincerity, rather. Yeah, you can't really repress who you are. Yeah. <laughs> Um, no, no, that's part of who I am. Right. So. And uh, we only have a few minutes left, unfortunately, even though I have had so many questions to ask you. But I, I do want to ask you this. I know that France, like other countries in Europe, has many more laws that limit free speech than in the U.S. And probably Trump would, would be arrested for much of what he said in this country, like saying Mexicans are rapists or attacking our justice system. And in the U.S., white supremacists are allowed to march in the streets with swastikas shouting blood and soil. Do you see the value of limiting freedom of speech where you are? Well, that's a complex question. <laughs> you know, my heart, my, heart says, my heart says yes when I think of Nazis and white supremacists. My head says, how do you determine, how, how far do you go one way or another? There's, there's a way... There's something that has, we have to find some, the pendulum has to level off at some point. But my, my tendency is to think, okay, you know, let people say what they want. And everyone else has to choose to not listen. Just like you can turn off the TV or not go to a movie mm-hmm. or not go to a play if you're offended by the content. The same way is true in life. If you're offended by the content, don't do it. However, with 45 in office, he his legacy will be his greatest gift is that he has brought out the worst in people. <laughs> he just just absolutely brings out the worst in people, and I think what a legacy to have. He's allowed people to just mm-hmm. dredge up all these this hatred that's yeah. in them or all these feelings. But you know, he's not the only one. When you consider, he, he's the he's the genesis of it. But Angela Merkel just was reelected, you know, a month right. ago or something. And one of her cabinet is a Nazi and was put in there with 13% of the vote. This is the first time wow. a Nazi. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this, this, these, um, these feelings uh, mm-hmm. that, that are underneath there somehow, you say, okay, how do we control them? What do we do with them? You can't control the speech, but there's got to be an educational thing about putting people face-to-face with people they, they don't know. I remember the Southern Poverty Law Center who did that. It, it was, 
with people who uh, were were victims of crimes or whatever. They made these the perpetrators face the family of, of their victims or the victims themselves and spend time with them to get some sense of, of having a dialogue with someone that they never talked to and would never talk to. Mm-hmm. And it supposedly has helped. But, you know, um, Desmond Tutu did that in, in, in South Africa also mm-hmm. with his Congress that he had. Yeah. And, of course, the families of the victims weren't so happy because they wanted retribution. But I saw it as a point of light, of hope for, for the universe. For something, you know, in the future somehow, I thought, you know, that we've, we've got to stop fighting with each other. The world is getting smaller. And instead of becoming tribal again, which is what I think we're doing, I see us as becoming tribalized now. Uh, is that a word? Anyhow. Yeah, it I, it I works. <laughs> okay. I see us as... It's returning to this, this tribalization mm-hmm. rather than expanding and reaching out. Right. This is a big subject for me. So yeah, well, it is me. for me, too, I know. And, in fact, I have uh, responses because I do think mm-hmm. it's true what you're saying about Trump bringing out the worst in a lot of people in terms of uh, people doing things that are so clearly wrong and um, se- seemingly without any conscience. But at the same time, ironically, I also see the level that he sunk to has brought the best out of people who are in revolt and, um, you know, in response and resistance to what he's doing in terms of, you know, feminists speaking out, for example, which is going on over here. Um, but I, we are getting close to the end of the time. But I wanted to ask you, Nancy, one last question. What would you say to someone else, maybe someone who's listening right now, who wants to make a big change like you did, whether it's to leave the country or maybe say to quit a, a job or leave a relationship to start a new business or do something else, but is afraid to take the plunge? Okay. I don't think I could, I could give advice about something like that. It's such a personal thing within each person. The thing I would say is, don't be so afraid. You know, don't be afraid of being stupid, of not knowing something, of, 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 of being lost. You know, you find your way. You go to a new place, you don't know where you are. I went to Edinburgh. I've never been there before. Did you I say, out, you said walking. Edinburgh? Edinburgh, Scotland. Right, okay. You know, and I start walking. I don't know where I'm walking, but it doesn't take long. You walk for a couple of days, spend time just walking around, and you get a sense of the place and what's there, and you find your way home. But I, as I said, have always had a good sense of direction, and especially when the sun is out, because I, I oftentimes use the sun as my, my guide, you know, which way to turn. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, I can't give advice to people like that. I, I think it's so personal, but... I'd say, don't be so afraid. Yeah. It's like these women who are speaking out now that you referred to. Mm-hmm. It took one or two just to say something, and others are, who have these stories that they've internalized for years are now finding the courage to reach out and hold hands with these other women and, and, and speak their truth. So fear, is, fear, is, fear and shame mm-hmm. are maybe the two worst things from my perspective that we live with. Shame yeah. is major. Right. Yeah, I agree with you. Well, we've come to the end of our time together. You've been listening to Under the Surface. I'm Amy Landau talking to my guest, Nancy Kissick, whose interesting life journey has led her to relocate to Paris, France. Thank you so much for being a guest on today's show, Nancy. It's a pleasure having you here. 
It was my pleasure, Amy. Thank you for having me. Having you here virtually speaking, that is, of course, because you're across the Atlantic Ocean, which is very exciting. (laughs) So thanks for listening, everybody. Please tune in again next Sunday at noon. And I'm going to close out the show with an appropriate track sung by the great Ella Fitzgerald. Enjoy. Every time I look down on this timeless town, whether blue or gray be her skies, whether loud be her cheers or whether soft be her tears, more and more do I realize that I love Paris in the springtime I love Paris in the When it drizzles, I love
the summer when it sizzles. Need.